This morning we will consider a brief story from 2 Samuel chapter 2. Before I begin, I'd like to say how greatly indebted I am to um, Dr. Ralph Davis's outline of this text and his emphasis on what the story teaches us about the kingdom of God. I'm saying that because I'm borrowing heavily from him today, and I want to make sure credit is given. Um, so, 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy word. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. To Hebron. Now notice that um, already David continues to speak to God before he makes decisions. This is something that Saul failed to do. Notice also that God tells David to leave his Philistine city and travel to Hebron. This is significant, and it's a significant moment because Hebron is a significant city. Okay, If you remember, Hebron was the place where Abraham, David's forefather, chose to settle down in the land of Canaan. In other words, God told David, I want you to go into Judah and I want you to settle in the town of Abraham, which is probably a nod to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 6, where God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And there is now a king living on Abraham's land. Verse 2. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king, <clears throat> king over the house of Judah. So notice that David's kingdom begins small. At this point, David is only recognized as king over one tribe, his own tribe. And so when God's kingdom begins in earnest in 2 Samuel chapter 2, this is the beginning of the Davidic kingdom, but it begins small. And there's actually a really important Bible principle here. Jesus, who was the true David, is the true David, talked about the kingdom of God constantly, right? If you read the Gospels, you, every page, Jesus is saying something about the kingdom of God. He referred to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. And he used a lot of parables to describe the kingdom of God. And one of the main points that Jesus makes about the kingdom is that it starts small. Okay, listen to Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree 
so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. When we were um, a much younger church plant, we're still a young church, we're about seven years old now, but when we were a little younger, I used to use, uh, I used to quote Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 all the time, um, because there were many Sundays where we were less than who's in the room today, and I would say, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. That's Zechariah chapter 4. And our church has grown. But the principle of the kingdom remains. Everything that God starts begins small. That's just how He does things. It's just how He works. And so when you think about um, the ministries that you're involved in in this church or the things that you're involved in that God is doing in the community... So if you think about small groups that you're doing or Bible studies or outreach efforts or, you know, deacon efforts, whatever it is, be careful not to measure success the way the world measures success. It may begin small and it may seem to bear very little fruit, but God rejoices in that work. After everything that David has been through, his kingdom now begins with one town and one tribe. But, of course, it's going to grow. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers, verse 5, to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Verse 6, Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for your Lord, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So, we don't know if the people of Jabesh-Gilead actually turned to David at this point and followed him as king. The writer doesn't tell us. But either way, this was a very bold and winsome attempt by David to expand his kingdom. These people, if you remember from last chapter, they were clearly loyal to Saul. And Saul was essentially an enemy of David. And even though that was true, David sends them a message to honor their loyalty to Saul. And again, as he speaks, he's also honoring Saul, his enemy. Right? Which we talked about this last week. David blesses them and he makes this promise to them without expectation. I will do good to you because of what you've done. And this is, I think, an example of how God always seeks to grow his kingdom. Not only does it begin small, but it will grow. And the way it grows, the way God grows his kingdom is not by hostile takeover. This isn't imperialistic expansion, right? It grows through humble, gracious appeal. Loving his enemies. 
It spreads through good news. David refuses to take the kingdom by force. He refuses to do that. He's waiting on God. He is trusting God to clear the path. And when God is ready, I will be king. This is David's mentality. The only effort that David makes is this kind of effort. Loving his enemies and blessing those who curse him. Which I think is a really important lesson for us in the nature of evangelism. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if God is already king over everything, which I believe, we believe in the church, God is already king over the heavens and the earth. There's not anything in the universe that doesn't already belong to God and is under his kingship, right? But everyone does not recognize that. Everyone's not recognizing that God is sovereign and is king over everything. And so just as one tribe in the beginning recognized David as king, the only people on the earth today and throughout history who are actually honoring God as king are his people. His Christians, us, right? And so that number started small in the first century, and it continues to grow such that in every nation and among every tribe, people of every language and culture around the world are hearing the good news and they're responding to it. And so the principle is God's kingdom has always grown by winning converts from among his enemies. And that's, in some small way, what David is showing us, right? Because that's who we were. I mean, everybody in this room was at one time, according to Ephesians 2, an enemy of God. Not deserving of His favor. And so, if that's who we are, and this is how God's kingdom grows, and we've been made a part of it, our job is to keep making disciples. Praying and working for more people to recognize the kingship of our God on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, In Horn Lake as it is in heaven. In DeSoto County as it is in heaven. That's, that's our job. And just like David with the people of Jabesh Gilead, we're not responsible for how people respond to the gospel. Um, we don't know how it's going to turn out. We're just supposed to keep loving and praying and waiting on God who is faithful to call His people to repentance and faith. Okay, So that's, that's kind of what I pulled out of this second part of the story. But there is a third part. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Nair, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth 
Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, we're going to save it for next week. There's some drama that's about to unfold with this new king and with Abner. But this Ishbosheth, this son of Saul, has not been mentioned until now in the story. And we have, we're not told, we have no idea why, as a grown man, a 40-year-old man, this guy apparently was not fighting beside his father on Mount Gilboa like the other brothers, which is a little suspect to me. And it's going to become obvious as the story goes on, who has the real power here? It's Abner. It's not Ishbosheth. Abner the commander of Saul's army, uses the last living son of Saul that we know of to gain power over the remaining tribes. And I think it's really important for us to see this for what it is. Abner is acting in open rebellion against God. This is open rebellion against God. Abner had witnessed many times the promise of God to establish a new kingdom through David. He witnessed it with his own eyes and his own ears. He heard it from his king, Saul's own mouth at the cave. David, you will be king. He heard this. He has every reason to believe that he should throw his weight behind David and absolutely no reason to do this. But Abner chose to reject the plans of God. And what he teaches us is this. And I think this is a super important thing for us to look at as the church. Until Jesus returns, there will always be opposition to the kingdom of God. The world and the devil will not go down without a fight. And all you have to do is look at the ministry of Jesus. Jesus faced constant resistance, mounting pressure during His ministry, right? He was tempted by the devil who claimed to have power over all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus didn't actually dispute it. He was harassed by demons constantly. He was hated by the religious authorities. He was condemned ultimately by His own people because Jesus was the embodiment of God's kingdom walking in the kingdom of the world. There's a really powerful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the great lion Aslan, um, who in the allegory sort of represents Christ, right? He's walking slowly to meet the witch, knowing that he's about to be killed. And the monsters, you know, the, the wicked, the monsters in the, in, the, in the movie, in the book, they're surrounding him, and they're mocking him, and they're sneering at him, and they, they beat him, they bind his paws, 
they shave his mane, and then they drag him up onto the stone table where he's killed. And Lucy and Susan are watching from the woods, and Lucy looks at her sister in tears and, and asks, why doesn't he fight back? Why doesn't he fight back? And when we're looking at the gospel story, the crucifixion of Christ, the arrest, the betrayal, the beatings, we could ask the same thing of King Jesus as we read that story. Because with one single word, Jesus could have crushed His enemies and forced every knee to bow. One word. Every knee bowed. But He didn't do that. Because that's not how God wanted to establish His kingdom. It was not a hostile takeover. He said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Apostle Paul um, I think helps us understand that we're now a part of that war that Jesus initiated. Not a, a physical battle, just as it, it, it wasn't really for Him, but a spiritual battle. It may come with physical suffering, just like it did for Him, but really His battle was against sin and death. Ephesians 6. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is that this battle that we're now a part of for the kingdom, we were praying for God to bring His kingdom, to, for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. So as we're, as we're in the middle of that, it is a spiritual battle. Paul says that the people that we want to think of as enemies are not the problem. Sin and death are the problems. And our job is to stand our ground and to trust our king. <clears throat> but think back to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Okay, The most pressing question for us this morning is this. If David is Jesus in this story, who are we? And I would say perhaps we're the people of Jabesh Gilead. Okay, We've heard the good news and the free offer of blessing by a gracious king. And the question is kind of like, what are you going to do with it, right? But... But first, I want to suggest that we need to recognize the tendency of our hearts to respond in here more like Abner. What do I mean by that? I mean that when confronted with the kingdom of God, when confronted with God's will, His plan, His sovereignty over our lives, our, for, our first impulse is usually to try to take what we want by force. 
It doesn't matter if it's God's will for me or not. I don't care. I want to do what I think is best for myself. I know what I need better than God does. I know what's best for me. I'm not going to talk to God about it. I'm not going to ask what He wants me to do. I'm not going to submit to His authority. I'm going to do it my way. That's the impulse of sin. and You really have to dig in to see that impulse going on in your own heart. It's not natural. It, It has deceived us to where we don't want to believe that that's actually what's going on. But what is going on inside of us is what's happening to Abner. The impulse of sin looks like open rebellion against the kingship of God. And here's the thing. In that moment, it feels like freedom. That's what makes it so deceptive and so dangerous is that in the moment, sin feels like freedom. But God is telling us, actually, in reality, it is foolishness and it is death and it is bondage. It is not freedom. And that's the battle that's going on inside of us. Okay, You're either completely deceived and dead in it and in bondage to it, or there is inside you the, the power of sin and the spirit warring against each other. This is the battle. Will we submit to the will of God or will we give in to the rebellion? Our hearts will always try to convince us that rebellion is freedom. But rebellion is always death. I want to close um, by looking at the words of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is um, probably my favorite psalm, I think. Can I have a favorite psalm? I don't know. Psalm 1. Listen closely. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Pay attention to this. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The reason I love this psalm is because of that metaphor. He says, righteous people are like a tree. But what's a tree? Now think about this, okay? We're we're used to kind of the Bible thinking about, because trees are kind of common in the Bible, but, but just imagine you don't know any of the spiritual stuff. What's a tree? A tree is a big thing stuck in the ground. And unless someone digs up the tree and moves it, which is really difficult to do, it's going to be stuck right where it's planted until it dies, right? It's not going anywhere. 
it's going to stick right there where it is. But the tree, though it cannot move, is alive and strong and circumstances have little effect on it, right? Seasons come and go. Tree's going to be there. He says the wicked are like chaff. Okay, so chaff is the husk of the seed, right? It's the part that we don't eat. It's worthless. And when you're processing the grain, you, you want the chaff to blow away, right? And um, when I used to teach this passage to students, I would say, think of it like a tumbleweed. Okay, so unlike a tree, you know, tumbleweeds from the old western, the big the big ball of sticks that just kind of blows by, you know, with the wind, right? You know, a tree stuck in the ground, a tumbleweed is not stuck at all, right? A tumbleweed can move freely wherever the wind takes it. But this is the question of the psalm. This is what the psalmist is saying, okay? Would you rather be a tree stuck in one place but alive... Or would you rather be a tumbleweed having the appearance of freedom but dead? That's that's the choice. But here's the best part of the metaphor. And this is why I love this song. It's so rich. I mean, when you start to think about it, trees are alive. But a tree has absolutely no power to control its own life or its own future. You ever think about that? I mean, this is true of plants in general, right? I mean, they don't move. They just, they're alive, but they have no power at all to control whether or not they're going to be alive a year from now. Or, right? They, they, they've got to have sunlight, They've got to have water. They've got to have soil. And none of it they provide for themselves. And this is also true for us. This is true for us as as human beings, as Christians. We have no power. No power. No one in this room has the power to create the circumstances necessary for spiritual life and growth. We have no power to move ourselves into the blessing of God's kingdom without His help. Jesus is the source of our life. He's the living water that the tree is planted next to. Revelation actually says that one day, even the sun will disappear because King Jesus will be our light. And there's going to be this big, beautiful tree right in the garden. And it's not going to need the sun because Jesus is there. So what am I telling you? I'm telling you that our job for now, according to Scripture, is simply to stand our ground and sink our roots deeply into the waters of life. Deeply into Jesus. Deeply into His Word. And trust that He's going to provide what you need. He's going to be faithful to keep you alive until that day when all things are made new. And that's just kind of it. Let's pray.
Father, I would just pray that um, as we reflect upon your kingdom, your goodness, your faithfulness, your sovereignty, promises that you've made to your people, that we would see you as a good king this morning, that we would we would not follow that heart tendency of Abner to reject your anointed one, to reject your son, to reject your kingdom in favor of foolishness and the appearance of freedom. Father, we confess that we all have that thing going on in our hearts that we think we know what's best. We think we know what we need better than you do. And we're wrong. And we confess that to you now. And we pray, I pray for everybody in this room that's struggling with um, doubt about the future or uncertainty about what to do with their lives or um, broken relationships or um, anxiety, pain, illness, financial problems, whatever it is, the circumstances in which we currently feel like we're planted. Pray that we would trust you in the midst of it and that we would just sink our roots deeply into Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.